Hey everyone, welcome to Racehawks. Uh, I'm Ryan Ford, I'm the director here if you don't know me. Um, really quick, raise your hand if you've never been to the Wesley before. Okay, awesome, we especially welcome you. Yes, very good. Um, and uh, yeah, for those of you who maybe haven't been to the Wesley before, if this is your first race talk, also we're excited for you to be here. I especially want to point out a friend of mine, uh, John McCoy, right here, in the blue shirt. Um, John is a, also a campus pastor at the bridge, and he's, uh, he's also my bow hunting buddy. Um, you've heard stories about him before in sermons. Um, so I'm especially grateful that he's here tonight. But right now, what I'm here to do is to introduce our speaker, um, Pastor Siobhan Woodard. So I, I want to say briefly before I do this formal introduction that, that Siobhan first showed up on the Wesley Foundation's radar. I didn't, I didn't remember this until recently, but she first showed up on Wesley Foundation's radar, at least I should say on my radar, um, back in the spring whenever we were still on lockdown and we were doing staff and everything else remotely. And in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and uh, other things that were happening at that time, we were doing some processing one Friday afternoon in staff. And the question we were discussing um, is, was basically like whether or not we had seen satisfying responses from churches um, in, uh, in the Ruston area. And we had a couple people on staff at the time who were attending Christ Church in Ruston, and they, and they shared um, one of the most satisfying stories that we heard um, about things that Pastor Siobhan said at Christ Church. Um, so that's cool. And then um, it's... it's uh, <laughs> That's part of the reason why her name came up whenever we were discerning this year who to invite. So, Pastor Siobhan Woodard is currently the discipleship pastor for Christ Church in North Louisiana. Um, Siobhan joined the Christ Church staff in 2017 as their first African American female pastor, where she served her first two years of full time ministry as the young adult pastor. Prior to joining that team, Siobhan served as the mentor and leader in the young adult ministry of Christ Church for nine years as a volunteer. So, a long history of work and leadership in that, in that church before she actually started um, getting a paycheck. Um, in 2016, she completed her ministry certificates um, with the Destiny Leadership Institute and was licensed and ordained as a minister under the Destiny Church and Ministers Network in 2018. Um, incidentally, she is a tech uh, alumna. Um, yeah, um, She graduated 2008, is that correct? Yeah, and we were actually classmates, although we didn't know one another at the time. Uh, we were here at tech at the same time. So. Um, without further ado, I want to welcome and, and be grateful for Siobhan. Thank you. Wow. Like, I sound like Lecrae coming in hot. How about that? Is that good? Okay. I'll stay pretty close to here, but I like to walk around, so just bear with me. So, I am so grateful to be here. Uh, Hannah called me uh, maybe a month or so ago, and we talked, and she reminded me of just our time together when I was here in the Ruston campus as a young adult pastor and just us connecting in, I didn't realize that when I did that panel discussion how impactful it would be and informative that it would be for many people. But I can be honest with you, I had to fillet my heart in front of everyone and expose hurt and wounds and pain that I hadn't shared with probably some of my closest friends. But I did it because I felt it was necessary for us to be connected to the human facet of our experience. I think media and, and people have projected this image of, because I can't touch the person who's experienced this, I don't feel it. 
And, and so for me to walk alongside many people in my church that had no idea that I had been a victim of prejudice and, and profiling and all these things, it was very sobering for them, number one, to see that I've always loved them with the love of Christ, that I've never carried this as a burden or bitterness in my heart, but also the resilience that I had to have as a young teen to navigate those things and still love well. And they were overwhelmed at, at the strength and the courage that it takes to share a story. But we don't just share our story just to share it. We share our story to awaken compassion and empathy and provoke action. And so today, when I talk to you about what I think is the greatest calling, that really means love. And, and this is what I know. I wrestled in my heart, I think for a while, how do I talk about racial divide and, and weave in the gospel because they have to be together as believers. And, and how do I talk about the fact that these injustices don't just happen in our country, but also in the church? What I share with you tonight is not about blaming or pointing the finger. I do think the church has a great calling to love all people well, and it's my honest opinion that we haven't done it the best, but I think we as believers have to become less self-centered and more compassionate. <laughs> I think we make many things about how we think and how we feel instead of responding to the Spirit of God and doing what Jesus said, right? Because if I base my feelings on my experience on what I had, had encountered, I wouldn't be in a church where I'm the minority. If I let my experience tell me what I should be obedient to and what I shouldn't, I would have missed out on a ministry calling. I would have missed out on impacting people who don't look like me. And I would have missed out on loving people who don't understand the life that I've come from, but they still love me. That's really important. I believe that sometimes we say that we've laid our lives down and we've taken up the cross to follow him. But when he asks us to love like him, which is sacrificially, we choose comfort instead. That's been a really big part of why we're just now starting to have these real and honest conversations about race in the church, because it's messy. There's pain. We have wounds and we don't know where to begin. But I think if Jesus walked in the room right now, he would say, begin with love. Not the shallow, I'll do for my own. And if you think like me and if you act like me and if you look like me and have the same ideas as me kind of love, but the love that goes beyond borders, the love that God loves us with. Because remember, we were a people outside of his people. We're considered Gentiles, all of us. We were not a part of the original chosen nation, but God chose us in his love, so we should choose to love others the same way. Obviously, we weren't the first people to struggle with this deep form of love, because in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, there's a lawyer, also known as a man who studied religious law, who is questioning the limits of love. And I'm gonna read it to you in the New Living Translation. It says this in verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Remember that. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds, right, do this and you will live. But let's stop here. An expert of the law is testing the son of God, and he's really trying to figure out if Jesus knows his stuff. And of course, Jesus responds and affirms this man that he knows the law well. However, as we begin to see, you can have knowledge of the law and lack the heart to apply what you know. 
Let me say that again. You can have an understanding of the law and lack the heart to apply what you know. Because the next verse says this in 29. The man wanted to justify his actions. That should let you know right now, he's not interested in the form of love that Jesus was really offering. He wanted somebody to say, it's okay to stay where I am. It's okay to be in my comfort zone. It's okay to do what I've been doing and put God's name on it. He was hoping that Jesus would co-sign with his agenda, but he gives him a greater calling. He says, if you stay loving that way, you'll never know the kingdom. There's more love than that. There's a greater love than that. And, And so he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in the Passion Translation, it says this. This is more like our culture. What do you mean by my neighbor? Emphasis on my. What is he saying? The statement that he's saying is what I believe we've been asking Jesus. Who is included in my love? Is there room to leave people out? Because there are some places and people and situations that I'd rather not be in. There's people I'd rather not love. So if I can just have the perks of being righteous without loving righteously, I'll take that. That's, in essence, what he's saying. Can I excuse myself from loving certain people because of my lack of experience? Can I keep my comfort instead of suffering with others? Listen how Jesus replies. Jesus replied with a story in verse 30. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and left him half dead beside the road. I want you to reframe the man in this story. Imagine this man is still a victim. He's still been stripped of his dignity and left with no help. But instead of bandits causing this, it's systematic racism. Actually, a vast majority of African Americans over the course of our nation's history would absolutely identify with the man left for dead with no hope and no way out. I guarantee you, the wounds are no less real than the man's wound depicted in this story, and they are quite visible. See, you cannot see African Americans bleeding, but we are wounded. You may not see us on the side of the road, but we've been on the sidelines of life because systems have been in place to tell us we don't get any advantages, we get disadvantages. So when we overcome, we overcome because we started behind the starting line. So imagine for one moment that the person on the side of the road is now him. You can also insert the addict, the single unwed mother, because in God's eyes, every person who's been broken in life looks like this. The question is, do we see everyone who's been broken by life like this? We'll get to that. I can name a laundry list of innocent people who have been robbed of so much. But let's be clear, no matter who we insert in this story, no matter their background, Jesus' response to love would be exactly the same. Exactly the same. Let's not forget that. But I want to take a look at how the religious people responded to someone who was broken and in need of help. Because in verse 31 it says, By chance a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Verse 32 says, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. By chance, prominent members of the church, just like this priest and temple assistant, may have seen 
the brokenness of the black community and simply pass them by. I came here to tell you reality. I came here to tell you that even in our church, we have a street that parallels our church. People who are drug addicted, people who are hurt and wounded that suffer from mental illness that we would rather call the police than try to get them counseling. Because we're afraid of what we haven't experienced. We're afraid of the brokenness that we don't identify with. And our fear is stronger than love. But Christ is calling us higher. Amen. So what I find interesting in all of this is that neither of them argued that the man was in bad shape. Neither one of them said that his condition was favorable or that he could get up. Do you find that interesting? But when it comes to racism in America, we don't make that definitive statement. We can identify with some instances, some people who've been marginalized, some people who've been harmed, but there's other people who've made poor choices and all of a sudden they're not a victim. And I'm not justifying breaking the law or any bad behaviors. What I'm saying is your compassion shouldn't leave just because somebody's making mistakes. Why did Christ come? For all of us. So in the moment that we realize we have to keep looking at what's broken at the core. And if there's a system that's been perpetuating this brokenness, we can't ignore that. So if nothing else, maybe the church should just acknowledge that we've been on the side of the road. Instead of ignoring and saying, oh, no, that's not a real thing. I remember one lady came up to me because she felt so convicted behind my story. And she just said, well, I just figured that wouldn't happen to somebody like you. What does that mean? Someone who graduates from university, grows up in a two-parent household. My parents have been married for 36 years. They own a home. I'll have access to generational wealth, but they're the exception. Let's be honest. I've never seen the hood, but I've heard the gunshots because we didn't live too far away in a shotgun house that my grandmother owned, and she had the land with two trees. But it's literally half the size of this. And, and we don't think about where someone has come from and what they've overcome to be where they are. And it's like, because I'm a good Christian girl who went to university, I shouldn't be a victim to racism. If I went out there right now, nobody knows that. All they see is my coily hair and my skin. I don't get a chance to tell them my resume. I don't even get a chance to tell them I'm a pastor. I get maligned, I get followed, I get accused before I've done anything wrong, and it's just because of the color of my skin. I don't have a criminal record. I've never been to jail. I've probably had two tickets my whole life. But out there, I'm a threat. This is the reality of what we experience as people of color on a regular basis. So much so that when I was dating a guy, he was like um, in our church and he was um, a white guy and he would do things that were kind of brash, like just stomp around stores or like knock over stuff by accident. And I was literally afraid to be with him when he was doing that because he didn't understand, like I could get accused of stealing. This was just three years ago, guys. I'm not telling you something that happened in high school. Just three years ago, I felt uncomfortable being in the store because I knew if he damaged something, they were gonna come after me. I'm in my 30s. Why can't I still go in a store and not be followed? It's, it's real. I am the person that has been abused by a system that I never knew about until I was infected by it. 
I grew up thinking I had an equal opportunity until I realized my mom had to fight to get me in gifted classes. And there was only three of us in the 90s. This is the reality of what I've been living my whole life, and I was born into this. When I took AP English classes, the teacher was surprised when I got the answers right. He would belittle me and say, how did you figure that out? How did you know that? And I was thinking, wow, I make good grades. I graduated with 3.9. Surely he knows I'm just smart, right? I forgot he was looking at something else that I don't see all the time. He was looking at the color of my skin and determining my level of intelligence and frustrated when I was excelling. This is the reality of what really happens. So I need you to process that this is real, that people of color are wounded on the side of the road. Yes, we're overcomers, but in the church, we need your support. In the church, we can't afford for you to walk past our brokenness. We can't afford for you to ignore that we have real experiences. We need you to see us. We need you to process with us. Mm. But I have this thought. Could it be that the priest was afraid, that the Levite was afraid? Could it be he believed that the man's broken choices got him there? Could it be that he should have known better than to travel the road alone because honestly, he was setting himself up to get robbed, right? They knew that that road was dangerous. But who knew? What if he didn't have anybody else and he still had to go on the road alone? Are any of those reasons justifiable not to help him? Maybe he thought he didn't want to get hurt by the same person that hurt that man. Whatever he perceived about the man's broken condition was enough to pass him by and refuse to be engaged and be involved. Does that sound familiar? Some people are so afraid to be involved because honestly, when you get into somebody else's brokenness, you could get hurt. We saw that with the protests. We saw people who were peacefully standing alongside, and once they find out that you're on one side, they'll hurt you too. I've seen video after video of young women with signs getting brutalized, and these were girls that weren't of color. But once you choose a side, the anger, the projection, all the things that come with our struggle become your struggle, and most people don't want that. Let's just be real. If you could avoid it, you probably will. But can you know the love of Christ as deeply as you do and avoid it? Can you know what he endured for you and not endure for others? Hmm. That's the question of the night. Because what I know is Jesus stopped at nothing to help save us, not even death. And we let fear and inconvenience lead us to inaction. Don't we believe that the same God that commanded us to love our neighbor would empower us to do it? Because there's most certainly risk when it comes to being involved in someone else's plight. But this story is not about the excuses. It's about highlighting the way we should be approaching broken people. Jesus brings in a new element to the story. And he interjects a man who is hated by the audience he's speaking to. Jesus, he's something. He's like, I got something for you. I'm going to make the hero of the story the person that you hate to show you where your love is lacking. This is how deep it goes. He's like, I'm going I'm to challenge the very prejudice, the very hate in you, and use this person to show you what love looks like. This is how serious he is about loving everyone. And he knew he was pinpointing an area in this man's heart that was flawed. So Jesus is showing us what should really motivate the way we love others is compassion and love, not fear and apathy. 
Verse 34 says, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Notice the Samaritan didn't say, before I help you, before I get involved, was any of this your fault? Notice he didn't say, are you sure you didn't make the wrong choice by going by yourself? You sure he didn't say, well, I just need a little bit more evidence that you really got beat up. I'm just being real, y'all. This is what happens when we let fear motivate us more than compassion. We start coming up with reasons why we can't help. We start letting somebody's sin in their brokenness keep us from seeing that there's still something that we can do. There's still a healing that is needed, and it happens in the spirit. They're crushed in spirit. This is a representation of someone who's crushed in spirit who has no hope. So keep that in mind. It says that not only did he not question or accuse, he saw the wounds and found a way to help. Somebody write that down. When you see the wounds, when you finally acknowledge it, find a way to help. Then it says he carried this man, invested in him way beyond what someone would deem necessary, at his own risk and his own expense, a stranger. He didn't know his backstory, he just knew his present reality. Guess what? You don't have to know the backstory. The present reality is real, and that's what God is calling you to love. He didn't know anything about that man, but what he was was moved by compassion. Can you imagine why? The Samaritan's been ostracized his whole life, knows what it feels like to, to be less than human, if you know, some Jewish people were so harsh as to consider Samaritans dogs, not people. Study your history and see who else had that experience. So now the Samaritan is identifying with an experience because he knows what it's like to be that man. And his compassion is moving him to action. But I think what's most important, because we always talk about what the Samaritan did right, which I love that, and we talk about what he did but I think it's important to listen to what he did not do. He did not let his inconveniences lead to inaction because the best displays of love are usually inconvenient. So was the cross. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> the Samaritan was at risk. It wasn't safe for him to carry someone that would consider him to be an enemy on his donkey. Did we forget that this man was Jewish and this was a Samaritan? What if the Jewish man woke up and said, oh, wait a minute, I hate you. You're trying to help me, but I'm going to hurt you. That could have very well been his reality. But the man said, I'm going to take care of you anyway. Here's another thing that he'd do. He didn't need the backstory. I have to say this so many times, y'all, because it's real. You don't have to know every single thing where somebody's come from to show compassion. All you have to know is that they need love from God. That's all. God's going to take care of the rest of the story. All you have to do is know your part when that intersects with you. Here's another thing. He didn't have to judge the cause of the man's circumstance before offering help. Because God, forgive us if we've judged who's worthy of love. If we have determined in ourselves, we have become judges of ourselves to say, 
well, that person's messed up too many times, or that person has done this wrong or that wrong. Since when do we judge who's worthy of love when Christ came for all? Here's the other thing. He did not have to share the same experience to know the man was worthy of care. Let me tell you, you're never going to know what it's like to be a black person. Surprise. <laughs> That's never going to be your experience. Doesn't mean that you can't care. We don't have to share tit for tat every experience. I didn't have to be Jewish to know that the Holocaust was horrific. What pain that people group suffered, right? I don't have to be Native American. Y'all know what I'm saying. We don't have to have every single experience in order for us to connect the human thread of pain and brokenness and hurt. Since when do we need a resume to love people? Since when do I have to have the list of all the things to make sure that's really a bad situation before I help you? Jesus would never do that. As a matter of fact, he turned over tables for the people who were getting abused that way. He saw a system that was broken and he turned it over. He saw people were getting cheated when they honestly wanted to worship. They honestly wanted to be a part and he saw them being overpriced, overcharged, and abused. That's when he turned over the tables. He was protecting the people who were being wounded by a system that couldn't access him. Do y'all see what I'm saying? Because of this system, there are people that don't feel comfortable coming to a place of worship. Where are you turning over tables so that they can enjoy worshiping our God? Those are the places where people need to see you so that they know the heart of God. Y'all get passionate, I'm sorry. <laughs> the last thing that the Samaritan did not do is let his cultural indifference keep him from showing kindness and going above and beyond to shoulder the burden. If you don't write down any of the other ones that I said tonight, write that one down. Do not let cultural differences keep you from showing kindness and going above and beyond to shoulder the burden. Now in conclusion of this text, Jesus asked the pertinent question, right? Which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus says, yes, now go and do the same. I'm asking you, which one of these sounds most like the way the church should handle people of color who've been broken and wounded? This is not a charge to do all your research and make sure you have justification for helping. It's about loving out of obedience to God and unconditional love. See, I leave you with this, Paul's words to the church. He reminds us that we're all members of one body. We don't get to compartmentalize which parts get attention because 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, in that way, whatever happens to one member happens to all. Say it with me, all. If one suffers, Everyone suffers. If one is honored, everyone rejoices. When one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. The message of this parable begins with Jesus because he saw all of us broken in spirit, left for dead. The enemy, who is the true bandit, who has come to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus came in the middle of that place for each and every one of us and gave us life. He saw our conditions, placed it all upon himself, and paid the price for our healing. 
And because of what he did for us, we should do the same. Be a part of the healing. Be a part of seeing someone else's life change for the better. For you that may be befriending a person of color for the first time and learning their story. For others, it looks like having conversations with family members who oppose or attack people of color. Being an ally or an advocate and supporting communities who are impoverished due to systemic racism. Whatever the Lord leads you to do, do it. That's my charge to you guys. I hope that you really took this to heart and that you heard my heart in everything that I shared with you. And it's been a blessing to be able to teach you tonight. Thank you.